we talk about disruption and like industries being disrupted, investing in that, but we never think about our own industry being disrupted. I think this idea of the locked box fund, like a fund you, you put your money, the LPs put their money, they don't know what's going to happen, and then you invest and you just report on a quarterly basis. I think that's going to move tend towards more liquid type of arrangements because you need the asset class to outperform risk-free assets like debt with interest rates being where they are. Welcome to VC Evolve podcast, conversations about the future of VC. Our guest today is Khaled Telhouni. Khaled is a managing partner at Nua Capital. He has a long history of investing in the MENA region with stops at Accelerator Technology Holdings, 2454, and Wamda Capital before starting Nua. He also worked with ABAN, an angel group. Khaled has worked in almost all stages, angel, seed, early, and growth. Also, he has seen it all. He's been actively investing in MENA since 2007. Khaled is also a musician. If you follow him in, on social media, you will see him once in a while playing his guitar. Khaled, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for having me, actually. That's a very, very kind introduction. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ahmed. Of course. Khaled, as I mentioned, you've seen it all. How many market cycles have you seen in MENA? Can you give us a quick overview of VC history in MENA over the past maybe 15 years? Yeah, so happy to... So I've seen multiple market cycles in MENA in the asset class and then just kind of in a more broad way. So I started my career in 2007. So I got out of college and I was trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. I, I ended up in Dubai at the time and I, I happened to join a private equity group actually that wanted to set up the region's first seed fund. And then attached to the seed fund was an angel network called ABAN. And the idea was to incentivize high net worth individuals to invest in early stage companies, startups, alongside a seed fund that also you know, brought more institutional capital uh, with them. At the time, back in 07, the definition of what was tech and non-tech was very different globally. But here there is very little to actually invest in. At the time, the idea behind uh, this kind of early stage fund was more about supporting SMEs and entrepreneurship more broadly. So we did a number of eclectic deals ranging from ostrich farm in Jordan that, needless to say, never went anywhere to uh, a palm paper mill in Egypt. But more specifically, we did stuff like PinPay in Lebanon, which was a mobile top-up business, which allowed to top up your kind of your prepaid phone. We did a fintech company called Hayati Healthcare, which did basically financing for elective procedures. So it, it, we did a lot of this kind of early, early stuff. And, and when I say MENA, I really say Middle East is really GCC, North Africa, Egypt, Levant, Jordan, Le and Lebanon, and then Turkey. So for me, that's always been kind of what I focus in my career. So I put them all under that bucket. And even though they're a bit different, but that's how I... I kind of conceptualized the region. At the time, th there was very little internet connectivity generally, writ large, but you were starting to see the advent of the mobile broadband revolution. So if I think back between 2007, 2010, whenever I would talk to people about the rise of tech startups in the region, the main thing I'd get back was, look, it's a nice idea, but for one thing, we just don't have the infrastructure for it. If you look at the number of broadband internet users in the region, it was just tiny. 
And the, the common refrain was, look, this is going to take decades till you get to a critical mass of potential users because it's going to need billions and billions of dollars of fiber, high-speed cable infrastructure that's going to take years to develop. And we're just not there yet. But what changed very rapidly was, like I said, like the advent of mobile broadband. And that overnight, in the period between 2010 to 2015, I would say, you had this huge upswing the number of digitally connected people who getting on the internet for the first time, they're getting on the internet for the first time on mobile. And that was a step change. And so if you want to kind of situate the region in terms of different cohorts of time during which you had different types of activity uh, based on when I started working at least, you had 2005-2010 was the early years where you started having some a broadband penetration across the region, and then you had some early content plays, uh, and, and most notably you had Arabia Online, which didn't work out, which is an online kind of magazine similar to the content part of Yahoo. And then you had Maktoub.com, which was basically the original kind of internet portal, and that was something in between AOL, also Yahoo, and Hotmail. And that was kind of the very early days, right? And then as the user base grew, I think Maktoub grew. And when you then really hit that critical mass towards 2010, which is roughly when Yahoo acquired it in the first sort of tech acquisition in the region. I think the next cohort is actually also related to Maktoub, which was the spin out of Souq.com from Maktoub. So Souq.com was an e-commerce platform. It was incubated inside Maktoub. Yahoo was not interested in it and it spun out of that. So it wasn't part of the acquisition to Yahoo and, and uh, the company spun out of that to, to keep on going. And as the region's user base increased, so did the idea of e-commerce and e-commerce penetration. You had this kind of next wave of the emergence of winning companies come out of that region or formed during that period. The really interesting thing about startup ecosystems in emerging markets or in nascent markets is that they are defined by uh, virtuous cycles, meaning there's a lot of skepticism over an asset class and this type of activity. And then once you have an exit or a good outcome or large outcome, so you have other companies. So the, the most notably you have is, is Maktoub and Souq. But then even in that same time period, 2010, 2015, you had companies like Fauri in Egypt emerge, which was really powered the entire underbanked financial services industry in Egypt. So you had the emergence of these and, large and companies. Yeah. So and mm -hmm. maybe at that time, there was also other attempts like Jiran, D1G, and other companies. Love, and if I'm yeah. not mistaken, during that same cohort you're talking about, I think Oasis 500 was started in Jordan. Right? Absolutely, yes. So the, for, for each of these kind of like success stories I mentioned, there's like notable failures, many of which I invested in, including D1G and Jiran. It was also the period when, I mean, also some kind of history on the region, most of the talent to emerge and the startups to emerge from the region came out of primarily Jordan at the time because Maktoub, one of the first and at the time most successful internet portals emerged out of there. So you had this kind of spillover of Maktoub alumni, Souq alumni, etc. come out of that. And that led to the formation or, or spurred the formation of Oasis 500, which was an early stage accelerator based out of Jordan with the aim of kind of leveraging that and, and leading to more and more startups. Obviously, that didn't, I think, work out as in the center of gravity shifted away from Jordan 
to the Gulf uh, in terms of the history of the region post 2014, 2015, roughly in that period. I think, again, everything is driven by validation and success. So that the emergence of this first kind of Yahoo acquisition, Maktoub, and then Souq out of it, and not to discount Fauri in Egypt, which was also, I think, more of an infrastructure play, but, but one that I think caught a lot of people's attention. There was this idea that this could actually work. So you had the beginnings of activity in the Gulf, start, on the GCC, starting to look at this. And that's when you started the first wave of VCs, quote unquote, dedicated VCs and incubators, accelerators started emerging between 2010 and 2015. So the earliest three dedicated, I would say, GPLP funds were MEVP, Beko, and WAMDA, which all kind of started between 2011 and 2013. Then you had different types of corporate investors like N2V, a variety of other kind of government-related stuff also in the Gulf. There was Accelerated Technology Holdings, which is now Silicon Badia, basically is morphed into Silicon Badia, also emerged around that time. So that was the beginning of this as an asset class, looking to invest in the companies that were emerging to serve the internet population in the region. So that's up until 2015. I think you have the big migration to the GCC more broadly between 2015 and 2020 because it becomes very, very clear that global talent wants to live in Dubai or the Gulf writ large. But then also there's a big mismatch in the depth of the consumer market. So the Jordanian economy or the Lebanese economy were tiny. They are not viable consumer markets for the scale that an internet business requires. And so you only approach that scale in the GCC. And even in the GCC, you have to be in multiple, multiple markets and preferably GCC plus Egypt plus, if you can, Turkey. But you need to be across the GCC and Egypt. So that was the, the beginning of a, a startup movement between 2015 and 2020, which is right about the same time we started Wanda. So the, the, the timing was quite fortunate. And that, I think, period is really defined by the emergence of Kareem which is the ride-hailing business, which is now becoming a super app as well, which eventually exited to Uber in uh, end of 2018, begin 2019, if I'm not mistaken. That 2015-2019 era had the emergence of the mobile-first app-driven consumer businesses, and that's kind of like a super interesting period. The, there was still not that much venture capital in the region, if you remember. I, I don't think there was that much AUM at the time. I think between 2015 to 2020, uh, 2019, over that whole period, a billion dollars being deployed in venture, which is not really much, right? And the fourth is like post-Karim exit, COVID, you had this huge emergence of interest in the space. So you went from... In 2019, we estimated 360 companies were formed across the region in the tech space to nearly 2,500 in, in 2022. You had $600 million deployed in 2019 through to 2.3 to 2.5 billion deployed in 2022. So you had a step function increase in both the capital provided and number of companies formed. Uh, as well as uh, the number of funds available. So I think there's anywhere between uh, 50 to 70 funds in the region as well. So you had kind of this kind of transformation. And then now we're in this period where there's a pullback in venture financing globally. And so it's not as dramatic as in other markets, but it's 
because it's so nascent and early and backed by sovereign wealth funds locally, but it's not, it's, it is receding. I mean, I think some of the luster has fallen away and is going to fall away slowly uh, over time. But I think the Pandora's box has been opened. You can't put the genie back in the bottle to keep on hitting on many analogies, but like the, or many cliches, I should say. It's hard for this activity to recede generally. I think people now do want to start businesses. The LPs have made money in the asset class. There'll be more and more people flocking to this overall ecosystem because it's also driving transformation in the, in the regional economies structurally. So yeah, so it's kind of four periods, I would say, and I would characterize. I have so many questions about this. Thank you so much for giving us an overview of history in MENA for VC. As you mentioned, maybe six or seven years ago, we had only three to five active uh, VC firms, like professional yeah. active VC firms. And now, today, in Saudi alone, we have 70 funds. And if yeah. you add the other neighboring countries, the Arabic-speaking countries, we were almost at 200, 250 funds. So are we there yet? Is MENA, VC, and startup scene big enough now, especially with the VC boom in Saudi? No, I think the, the way I like think about it is that there is this kind of initial emergence of the asset class and of the, act, the kind of startup activity generally, but it's still massively underdeveloped compared to even other emerging markets. If you just benchmark against the asset class as a percentage of GDP or the asset class as a percentage of overall capital asset allocations and private capital, it's still way behind that, those respective percentages in emerging markets. So we still have a very, very long way to go. I think we are in this part of the cycle, which is somewhat unique to us, but you do see a little bit of it in Southeast Asia and Latin America, which are other kind of similar-ish emerging markets in the sense that they're, they're, it's not one country like China or India or the US. It's developing countries where if you aggregate all of those markets, you have a big economic block, but individually, they're not that large. You have small-ish fragmentation of small VCs, basically. A lot of smaller funds, mostly families that own traditional businesses, typically retail businesses, trading businesses, that see now that, look, we, we think there's a huge opportunity in, this, in the tech sector. We see how there might be disruption to our existing industries. So we want to play in it, but we're not going to play through existing managers. First wave is we want to do it ourselves, and the sovereign wealth funds are going to see us. So basically... You know, a family group will put $10 million and, for example, I'm just giving an example, and get to raise another 10, 15 from, or 20 from fund of funds programs across the region, and then they build a VC platform. This is kind of the first emergent wave, and it's a function of the fact that the sources of wealth here and the tradition and the corporates, which are still disproportionately family-owned, still see this through a trading mentality, thinking that we can own this kind of piece of it. And I think that's starting to change over time. I think, you know, this is a very unforgiving, risky business. You get your fingers burnt very quickly. Uh, and so I think slowly there's this realization, give it to third-party dedicated professional VC managers rather than trying to do it ourselves. And so you're going to move, I think, the market's going to move from a large number of VCs, but, very, but relatively small AUM overall, to a smaller number of more dedicated and focused VCs with larger AUMs. I think that's a natural evolution of this. I don't know how much time it's going to take. 
but I, it feels like it's already starting to go in that direction as we've entered this new cycle that's much more kind of like a VC winter where valuations aren't just going up and up and up and up. When things are going up and up and up, everyone feels like they're a genius. But now the companies can't raise money, they're down rounds, things aren't as rosy. I think there is a lot more people are circumspect. So I expect the number of managers to shrink, but the AUMs to keep on growing overall, but much more focused in a smaller number of dedicated managers. It makes sense. It's the evolution, the natural evolution of VC. Uh, everyone wants to be a VC. And then you start seeing uh, the power law takes yeah. place and uh, you develop top tier VC firms who keep returning high returns. Yeah. But let me push back a little bit on something you mentioned about mm-hmm. the valuations going yeah. down, especially in the US and rounds become smaller. But it seems in MENA, things are not affected that much. We're still seeing no. big rounds at high valuations. Like I saw $20 million Series A, Series A, $20 million last month in Saudi. Yeah, so I think sometimes the naming is a bit off. Let me rewind a bit. So yes, you are... Absolutely right that seemingly the size of rounds of valuations have not come down as much as in developed markets, especially the U.S. That's that I can I agree with you on that front. I don't think there's a dramatic restructuring of the market. Instead, there's this kind of slow-ish decline in the size of rounds and then the valuation of those rounds. And why that's happening is because, A, the market is small to begin with. So it's easy for an outlier to shift the whole average upward. The whole ecosystem is reasonably slow. Secondly, the sovereigns and fund of funds programs, they put a lot of capital into a large number of smallish funds. And so those funds are effectively doing a lot of internal rounds to kind of keep their companies afloat until they run out of dry powder, which is right about now and has been happening kind of gradually over time in a much bigger way in Egypt than compared to the Gulf or Saudi in particular. So I would say it's happening, but happening at a slower pace and this kind of the slowish decline. But the dry powder is going to run out at some point and then the fund of funds and the LPs want performance ultimately. So it can't just be around propping up companies. There's also, in our culture, that nobody kind of talks about failure or companies failing, etc. There's a lot of that that just doesn't go reported. So even media here does not report these things as much as, as elsewhere in the world. So it gives the aura of things being okay, but like there are, there are big things not going well across the board, right? And I think we just generally don't publicize them as much. But I think those stories are going to start to come out more and more over time. For a long time, we've seen many replicas of successful U.S. startups and MENA. And that obviously worked. The biggest examples would be, as you mentioned, um, Souq, Maktoub, Kareem, Talabat, and many others. Yeah. Jahaz. Mm-hmm. Uh, is that the only thing that works best in Mina? I think that is this idea of the kind of copycat, I think sometimes a bit disparaging, but I think it does work. I think we rarely see companies emerge that are building something new and novel solving for a, 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 a new business model because then that, that requires that company to go global. And I don't think we have the ecosystem that's ready to take companies global. Having said that, there are some exceptions. I think very notably from my last fund at Womda, we invest in a company called Insider out of Turkey, which is a SaaS business. And they're competing on a global basis. But that kind of tends to come out of places like Turkey more than MENA. And the reason for that is... I don't think we yet have 
the engineering talent to deliver on kind of software product driven businesses yet. Turkey has some of that a little bit. And that's just a function of the types of universities that we have and the kind of infrastructure before setting up a company. So everything around like research-based funding, uh, university infrastructure, all that stuff is it's just not there yet here, but emerging. Yani, I, I think you can be hopeful that it might come at some point. So I think that's why you see companies built here that have taken business models to adapt for local consumption, because also there's so much to be done there. If you want to start a global business, it's better for you to do it out of the U.S. than do it here because you're going to get access to cutting edge talent that is able to be able to push the envelope and has seen stuff and is on the cutting edge of their respective fields, whether commercially or technically. Whereas here, you're, you don't get that type of talent naturally here. And at the same time, because we lag behind the developed world, there's so much left to build for leveraging what's done elsewhere. So you, because there's a need for adaptation in many cases, not all the time, but in many cases, you need to adapt for local requirements. And I think that remains an interesting business model. I do see going forward that you'll start building companies, and we're starting to see it, companies that solve for very local problems or regional problems, but they have to have enough scale. The problem has to be big enough across the region for it to work. Let's shift the talk to the exit potential. We've talked about those big acquisitions, but the lacking thing in MENA has been and still is IPOs. Yeah. We've seen a few tech IPOs in, in the MENA region. Some of them actually went IPO in Saudi and some of them went IPO in the States. Yeah. It's only a handful. Yeah. What do you think about the future of IPOs, tech IPOs in MENA? Uh, are we going to see more tech IPOs? Is this the potential exit for many companies in MENA or are we still thinking that acquisitions by bigger international companies is the best path? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the tech IPOs are a function of the overall capital markets here, which have been historically extremely underdeveloped. And that has changed. So you know, let's put the tech piece aside. I think the overall public markets here are going through an entire cease change of development, particularly Tadawal in Saudi and ADX in Abu Dhabi, but primarily Tadawal, the, the Saudi exchange and its parallel exchange in So they went from quite a small exchange by market cap standards with very low volumes and very little liquidity and very small number of businesses. You, you historically would see like a few banks, insurance companies, telcos, etc. And that's it. And that was the case. Now you're having the exchange really deepen. You had obviously Aramco helped that in Saudi. But also the other extreme deepening of these markets, both on volume and market cap. So one level of that is the intergenerational change in those kind of traditional retail and traditional family-owned businesses. Patriarch is handing over to their children, their children are handing over to their children. And then suddenly the shareholding is very split. And so naturally that's leading many of these businesses to... Um, seek to basically find some liquidity and professionalize the management and so that the shareholders get their money out and then somebody else manages it. So you've had a huge, relatively huge number of firms go public, much more than ever, ever before. And I think that's had such a positive impact on the market. And then the third impact is the opening up a liberalization of the regulations on those markets to allow for movement. 2010, 
the market cap of the Dow was 350 billion. Today it's 2.6 trillion. You had in 2000 only 80 companies listed on the Dow. Today it's 223. The same in Abu Dhabi, you had under 50 firms listed in 2000. Today it's 73. So th there's a positive move overall in velocity, volume, and market cap. And that's led to like Jahaz being able to go public, for example, and many more that are on the way. So I think this is a really positive step. We think it's coming, and that's going to lead to more tech IPOs naturally. Khaled, what innovations in the VC model internationally or regionally have attracted your attention? How do you see the future of the VC industry, whether in MENA or in general, internationally over the next maybe five years? We talk about disruption and like industries being disrupted, investing in that, but we never think about our own industry being disrupted. I do get a sense that generally alternatives broadly, this is private equity, is I think this idea of the locked box fund, like a fund you, you put your money, the LPs put their money, they don't know what's going to happen, and then you invest and you just report on a quarterly basis. I think that's going to move, tend towards more liquid type of arrangements where the, these models evolve in the long run because you need the asset class to outperform private markets, and you need the asset class to start compete now with risk-free assets like debt, with interest rates being where they are. So I, I expect innovations in the model, in the fee structure, innovation in how the structure works, some more liquidity for LPs in different ways, shapes or forms. I expect more the power to shift more, the dynamic to shift more towards LPs and kind of new models emerging around it. Well, the other thing uh, is important, I think at the late stage, growth stage, I think this difference between tech, non-tech, I think that's no longer real or the dichotomy is very blurry, meaning it's not about being a tech business or a non-tech business. There are very few overall like purely technology engineering driven software companies. AI is an example of that. It's really about companies reshaping their industries, leveraging te technology in a digitally native way. So that kind of enters the realm of what is technology, what is not technology, and it has interesting implications. It means that it, not everything has to be hyper growth, but things can have much more kind of steady growth, but much more profitable in line with the private equity type of growth mindset. But then these are also investments and companies that are much more kind of stable. So I think you're going to have a reshifting of this kind of overall approach, especially in emerging markets, also in the U.S. at the late stage. So if you can achieve profitability and grow slowly, I, I think you may end up in a situation where it's if there's less liquidity in the market overall, you may tend towards profitability at the expense of hyper growth that's less profitable. And I think that's just the, the market reacting naturally to less liquidity. Because there's less liquidity globally, and especially in emerging markets, by nature, there's less liquidity. That makes sense. Uh, companies, yeah. even in the US, companies are taking way longer to go public now. The average yeah. was, I think, six to seven years. And now we're talking about 12 to 14 years for a company to go public. And maybe this gave rise to mm. the secondaries market yeah. in the US, the direct secondaries. Khaled, to my final question, you guys at Nua Capital, have an active blog, a podcast. How important do you think media is for a VC firm? I think it's an important way to communicate with founders and LPs. In our business, we have kind of two key stakeholders, obviously, our investors and then 
also our founders and prospective investors. I think what's good about the podcast and content and you know, publishing the way we think is it sheds a light into how we're thinking, which I think is useful to, to match us with founders or LPs out there that are researching the sector or researching in VCs and want to see how we think to see if we're a good fit for either for them to invest in us or to partner with us if they're founders. And it's useful in that sense. Is this quantifiable? How do you measure this? I don't think it's easy to measure this impact really. But I think it's quite useful. It's fun. We, we enjoy doing it. And it's also a good way sometimes just to jot our own ideas down because we, we know we have to publish it or we, knew, we know I have to record a podcast or something on a topic. It's a good way to also get us thinking and building a thesis around something or, or thinking about something new. And it definitely helped Noah brand. It's very popular now because of those blogs and podcasts and because you're active on social media as a firm. Well, Khaled, is there anything you want to mention that I didn't ask about? No, no, I think that's great. I think I really enjoyed this and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the podcast once it's published. Khaled Talhouni, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you.